Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to a special NJSBA broadcast of Conversations on New Jersey Education, NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio Show. This evening we're using this format to bring together members of the NJSBA's Legislative Committee and Urban Boards Committee, as well as any other interested board members. We are calling this broadcast a conversation on the state legislative agenda for June 2011. With the summer legislative break coming soon, there's no better time than now to have a dialogue on these issues, which will be decided very shortly. My name is Ray Pinney, and I will be your host this evening. Joining me uh, as guest and co-host are Mike Bansick, NJSBA's Director of Governmental Relations. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Ray. And also John Blina, NJSBA's VP for Legislation and Resolutions. Welcome, John. Thanks, Ray. Uh, a few things on the format. While we are asking members of the Legislative Committee and the Urban Boards Committee to participate in this online meeting, it is not an official meeting of either body. It is, but we look at it as an interactive informational meeting. How do you participate? There are two ways. First, you can do it via the phone. Just dial 1-347-989-8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate in my switchboard that you are interested in asking a question. Once you are done with the question, I will ask you to press 1 again until another time when you may have an additional question. I have someone who will be screening the calls. Her name is Christy, so that I can get the names of the caller. Also, if you are on the phone line, I will ask that you turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there is a delay and it is a bit confusing. I will try to get to the callers as I see them in order. A second way is just to listen live via your computer and join the chat room. You will, however, have to register with the Blog Talk Radio in order to do that, but it's a rather simple process. Then if you have a question or a comment, I can address it as I see it on the in the chat room. We want this event to be more of a two-way uh, communication. We want to hear from the people in the audience uh, and the listeners more than a one-way conversation between Mike, John, and myself. Uh, now I'll ask John Blina, do you want to make some opening remarks, John? Sure, great. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here participating in this meeting. Uh, all too often uh, in education and school boards, once the summer comes along, we tend to lose contact with each other, and we only pick up things again when schools open in September. I think that using technology like this helps keep us abreast of the issues without disrupting our schedules. Uh, I look forward to hearing from our board member colleagues on many of these issues as the show moves along. And thank you for logging in. Uh, and if you're listening via uh, archive, we ho- hope, hope you enjoy it. Uh, our, con- our conversation this evening will focus on three major issues, and one of them is kind of lumped several together. Uh, one is on uh, the state budget and how the school funding formula, the Supreme Court ruling, and this uh, pension and health benefit reform is tied to that state budget. Then we will move on to choice and charter school issues, followed by tenure reform and teacher evaluations. Uh, now the first issue we will address is the state budget. Mike, after the governor proposed his budget, three things happened that considerably altered the proposed budget. First, revenue projections jumped uh, anywhere from 500 to 900 million, depending on whose numbers you look at. The Supreme Court ruled on the school funding caps, and finally, the pension and benefit reform packages were being negotiated. Uh, first of all, these are a lot of outstanding issues. Is it possible that we will not have a budget deal on time? 
I, I guess Ray, it's it's. Thanks for 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 inviting me to be here. I, I think it's it, it's it's really up in the air right now. Um, the 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 state legislature is required per the Constitution to to enact a budget that's balanced in terms of spending and 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 the revenues to cover the spending by midnight of June 30th. Um, based on where the legislature is right now, today's today's June 14th. Um, to my knowledge, a draft budget bill has yet to be introduced. I would expect that we'll probably see one probably by the latter part of next week, which will give the legislature um, basically uh, probably somewhere between 10 days to, to a week to, to vet all the ins and outs and all the, all the individual working parts of the budget by that June 30th deadline. Um, because of the, the Supreme Court ruling and, and the governor's willingness to to go along with the court's mandate that five hundred million be added to school aid for the for the, the existing um Abbott districts, there's an expectation that the budget will be amended based on what he originally gave to the legislature to include at least that amount. But owing to the discussions that ensued after the uh ruling by the Supreme Court, it seems that a lot of people on the Democratic side have discussed providing significantly more money to address some of the other districts who weren't Abbots who are spending below adequacy. I think in the in the original court uh findings there were there were two hundred plus districts, I think it was two hundred and seven districts that were spending under adequacy. So if you subtract out the thirty one districts there's there's somewhere between 174 or 175 districts that still need to be brought up to a level of funding that that isn't included in the budget. If the legislature gives the governor a budget that includes more money than than the governor had has said he would be okay with spending, the first question is where does the money come from? Um, as you said earlier, the the legislature in their deliberations has assumed that the state revenues are greater by a magnitude of $900 million than the governor and, and the treasurer originally estimated when they gave the, the legislature the budget in February. The treasurer and the administration believe that the revenue numbers are only up by about $500 million. So there's a $400 million gap there. And if the legislature gives the, the, the governor a budget that spends an amount over and above what he believes the increase in revenues will be, the question is, will he will he approve that or will he veto the budget? And if they give him a budget before, well before June 30th, in theory they could pass a budget by the end of next week or the beginning of the following week. There are several days before Thursday, June 30th, for the governor to veto it and send it back. But right now it's all speculative. We haven't seen anything, so it's just hearsay from Steve Sweeney and, and, and some other legislative leaders that – the Democrats desire to add some of this additional money back to advantage schools beyond just the, the 31 Abbott districts. And uh, correct me, but uh, my understanding is that uh, actually when they argued uh, the ELC on behalf of the Abbott district, they were arguing that the formula be filled, be funded, uh, right? Not just for those Abbott districts, but the Supreme Court took the ruling saying we feel we only have jurisdiction under the Abbott districts or. The plaintiff only had jurisdiction in that area, so uh, <coughs> that's why the court kind of just ruled in that area—a a divided court, I, I should add. Right. Um, that's exactly right. 
do you believe that, or this is all speculation, because the five hundred million would pretty much cover uh, adequately cover the the Supreme Court ruling. The additional money that they want to provide to other districts who are underfunded in whatever way they were looking to do that, where would that money come from if uh, the governor only takes his five hundred million dollar surplus that he takes? Would the well, Democrats uh, have to propose a millionaire's tax or something to that effect? I, I think I think the, the the there are some members of the legislature who have said that in order to put back a billion dollars in funding, even with the optimistic revenue estimates of the legislative budget and finance officer, they need some additional revenues, and there would be a uh, in their in their eyes a partial reinstatement of the the millionaire's tax. Remember that. The millionaire's tax before wasn't really a millionaire's tax. It was an increase above the, the highest rate on people who earned more than $450,000. So in, in, in this iteration, there's been some talk in the legislature that there would be a millionaire's tax on people who truly earned a million dollars or more that would yield some additional revenues that would allow the state to, to provide the funding that the court cited as being not included in the governor's original budget proposal. But the governor's been very adamant about the fact that he would never sign any increase in, in income tax. So if if the governor isn't willing to, to concede that their, the revenues are actually higher than his treasurer has estimated, then if the legislature wanted to give him a balanced budget, they'd have to make reductions in spending in other places. And that's where the, the real games begin, because the question right now is, what what would they be willing to sacrifice in order to to provide those additional resources to public schools? Everything else in the budget is pretty tight as well. So um, there, there's there's the potential for a lot of interesting discussions in the next couple of weeks leading up to June 30th, when theoretically at least this all has to be resolved. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is there a what what is the likelihood of the governor taking excess revenues, if you will? And applying that into other areas that are already cut. That, as you said, that's where the gamesmanship comes in. Well, yeah, I think that there's been a lot of discussion about some of the cuts that have been made in Medicaid that disadvantage a subset of the working poor. And, and there's been a lot of, uh, you know, press about that. And a lot of people in that in that segment of the state's population have said that the governor is creating a disincentive to work because the only people who 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 would 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 be able to get some of this 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 Medicaid money would would be those who are completely unemployed. The the retort on the other side is those people will still be served. They'll have to go through hospital emergency rooms and they'll get money through the the charity care program. But I guess it begs the question of the the magnitude of money we're talking about is not just you know a million or two million dollars. It's in it's in the the hundreds of millions of dollars. And there aren't too many places in the state budget where you can lock in on one or two accounts and make that kind of a, a cut. So it, it, it will be fascinating to see if if the governor is willing to concede. And that's what, I guess, makes this discussion about pension and health benefits reform that much more interesting mm -hmm. because the governor has been seeking this. He addressed it in his budget address to the legislature. And when he put his budget forward, he assumed that these things would occur and that the state would save somewhere around $800 million dollars by, by virtue of the reforms that were proposed. So I guess to the extent that the state does, in fact, move forward with, with changes in the funding for pensions and health benefits, 
it yields some additional dollars that may factor into the equation when it comes to finding the other resources to cover an increase in funding for a lot of the other school districts. But there's there's no working spreadsheet where you can go online and see, okay, the legislature scored this much and the governor scored that much, and we'd suggest that they take money from here or take money from there. Most of these discussions, to the extent they're going on at all, are happening in the partisan caucuses and in meeting with legislative leaderships in the governor's office. And nobody right now has been privy to any of that stuff. Uh, Mike, before we move on, because all these things are connected, the, the, the state budget, pension, and benefits, yeah. it's probably legislation that you and I will not even talk about, uh, might be connected in the deal to get the state budget passed. I, I want to stay a little bit on the uh, school funding form in the Supreme Court decision. First of all, to any of the listeners out there, uh, if you want to call in and give us your comments, uh, do you think the governor and the legislature should scrap this, the funding from or just fund it? Because I, I sent out a questionnaire to them, and it was very interesting, some of the responses. Uh, most people believe, uh, over 80%, that uh, the Supreme Court ruling really divided the, the educational community. And a significant number do want to look at a new funding formula. Uh, do you think... Of, you know, we've discussed this before. Will that be an issue, not necessarily for now, but in the future, in the fall, that the governor will be looking at a new funding formula? Well, somebody mentioned to me that he had said in a town hall meeting recently somewhere in central Jersey, I think they said it was in Tom's River, that, that they were going to start to really look at, at a new school funding methodology as early as July. Um, and, and subsequent reports were, were basically unconfirmed. But he's clearly said that a new school funding formula is a, is a key concern of his. And the Commissioner of Education said that as well when the Senate Budget Committee reviewed the education budget earlier in May. I think that this is going this, this budget and what happens relative to how the state complies with the court ruling is going to set the stage for a pretty large discussion in, in the ensuing months of uh, the balance of this legislative session and the beginning of the new session next January about how we fund public schools and where the money comes from. So, I, yeah, I think I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about this moving forward. Yeah, Mike, do you have any idea how that's going to play out? Because the, the uh, Supreme Court's already ruled that the funding formula is valid. And and I think that was part of the gist of the, the ruling that they just had, was that you the, the Senate gave them a proposal, the legislature gave them a proposal, that it was deemed to be a valid process, and now they're saying, well, we have to change it again. Well, yeah, and and, and a lot of people were, were really, I, I guess, befuddled is a good word to use with regard to the, the court's ultimate decision here because they basically retrenched. They said that the School Funding Reform Act three years ago, when the, the Education Law Center initially challenged it, would would be considered constitutional if it was fully funded. But the solution that they've come up with is – not full funding, but rather full funding only for the original plaintiffs, which are the Abbott districts, which in theory under the School Funding Reform Act disappear. And the money follows students who live at or below the poverty level, regardless of where they live in the state. So there's, there's sort of mixed signals from the Supreme Court now about the validity of the School Funding Reform Act. If, if, if they're going to say that the state doesn't have to fund those districts who aren't spending up to adequacy, who aren't Abbott districts, they seem to be reversing their decision from three years ago where they said that, that, that the law was constitutional as long as it provided. 
provided the funds that it said it was going to provide. So that's the first level of confusion. I think the other issue is the, the, the amount of resources built into this formula assume that after a point in time, and it was technically... Mike, uh, we're having a little problem hearing you here. Yeah, okay. I was going to ask you if that was uh, only me, because I was having some difficulty hearing uh, that. Uh, I was doing, yeah. Uh, oh, do I need to talk louder, or is this better? That's a little bit better, yeah. Okay. It, 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 it really wasn't a question of volume, Mike. It was everything was breaking up. Okay. Um, I may just be the reception. I, I, I think that um, the state was required to analyze the School Funding Reform Act three years in, and look at the funding measures for per pupil spending amounts, et cetera. And they never did that because the formula was never fully funded. And there was supposed to be some adjustments based on changes in enrollment, et cetera. And that whole big pot of adjustment aid was supposed to be leveled down, at least in part, based on changes in, in enrollments, et cetera, throughout the state. And that never happened. So there's there's a whole lot of issues that still haven't been addressed from a year ago that that are carried over in this discussion about the School Funding Reform Act. But there's an awful lot of people in the legislature on both sides of the aisle who are never really happy with this methodology. And, and I think that there's a lot of people out there in, in, in local districts who had a lot of questions about how the calculations for their local fair share were developed and whether the adequacy amounts per pupil were actually appropriate or should have been higher, and there's been a, a, an awful lot of speculation. And I think at this point, there's a lot of people, especially on the Republican side, who just want to scrap the whole thing and start from scratch. But if if we go to a new uh, funding formula, it would still have to go through the legislature and the Supreme Court. Now, granted, the Supreme Court might be different next year than it is this year, uh, and I guess it's possible that the the legislature would be different after this election. Well, I so, mean, I, but I, mo I, most likely, it would have to be the agreement between the Democrats in the legislature and the governor for new yeah, funding. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the the court isn't necessarily involved unless the state implements a funding methodology that somebody like the Education Law Center historically challenges as not being appropriate for the needs of all the, the school children in, in, across the state. So, in theory. The legislature and the governor could work toward a new school funding methodology and implement it in the next school funding cycle, which would be fiscal year 2012-13. And unless somebody filed a suit against against the state, which would ultimately be heard by the, the state Supreme Court, it would remain valid for an indefinite period. Um, the governor had, had a lot to say about the, the court's involvement, and he's also talked about the fact that he wanted to put – people on the court who we would believe would more literally interpret the Constitution and not read into things and hence legislate from the bench, as he says. So, okay. We're, Mike? Yes. Uh, we're, we're starting to lose you there again. Um, for our listeners, if you have a comment or question on the school funding formula or school funding, you dial 1-347-989-8904 or and press 1, and that will indicate that you're ready to make a comment on that. Um, all right, Mike, let's, let's continue on the state budget, because uh, if there's new school funding for me, that probably would be an issue for next year, whereas the state budget, as we've been talking about, is like a few weeks away. Um, let's look at the health pension and health benefit reform package, because 
right now it seems like if there's going to be a problem, it will be in the, the assembly. The, the Senate, the Senate president, and the governor seem to are able to reach a compromise. Uh, the assembly has not been as uh, welcoming to the governor's uh, pension and benefit reform, though I, I did notice today that uh, just recently the that Speaker Oliver did post the, the bill. Uh, where do you think that's going, and what are what's the significance to the district? I know you mentioned some things already. Well, I guess the the, the big issue and the big reason why the Democrats are are not completely on board with this, has to do with the fact that this is something unique in that following the, the legislation last year, which put in place a minimum 1.5% payment towards health benefits across the board for public employees, this legislation would go a lot farther in putting statutory percentages in based on how much you earn for public employees across the board. Historically, that's all been done at the bargaining table. And the unions are, are beside themselves because they believe that this is a big bargaining chip that they've used to leverage salary changes, etc. And if this is taken off the table as a, as a bargaining chip, it, it lessens their ability to, to represent their members and get the best deal for public employees. So the Democrats historically have been per, portrayed as being on the side of the unions. And there's a lot of issues within the Democratic caucus about whether or not it's appropriate to take this kind of a stance, which would in perpetuity put something in statute that, that requires a threshold for how much people are going to pay for their health benefits. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated issue, and there are a lot of people, uh, especially in, in the public sector side, on the union side, who think that this is the beginning of the end of collective bargaining. And I know even within the Democratic caucus, it was quoted in the paper, NJ.com, that uh, Majority Leader, uh, Assemblyman Cryan, uh, didn't think it should even be posted because in his, he, his, he's quoted as saying that the, not even 50% of the majority party support this type of reform. So uh, I guess it gets to my original question. This is a lot of work to do by June 30th because to come up with a plan that they all agree on. It absolutely is a lot of work to do. There seems to be at least the the, the, the the beginnings of an agreement between the Assembly Speaker, the Senate President, and the Governor on the form that this legislation would take, and a draft bill was put out on NJ.com this afternoon, which includes the, at least the, the proposal that the Senate Budget Committee will hear on, on Thursday, but I wouldn't be surprised if they make some last-minute changes between now and Thursday morning. Uh, essentially, they're going to create a scenario where people pay a dramatically higher amount towards their health benefits based on a tiered system that, that considers what your threshold of, of salary is. The higher you, you, you earn, the more you're going to pay towards your health benefits. The minimum, the floor in the proposal is 3% for people who make under $25,000, and the maximum would be 35% for people who make more than $110,000. That would be that would be ratcheted in or, or phased in, I should say, over a four-year period. So based on the fact that a lot of districts and a lot of, of teachers, for example, right now are only paying 1.5%, there would be a fairly substantial increase considering that the average teacher salary is somewhere between fifty dollars and $60,000. Most of the teachers would probably be paying 5 or 6%, which is 
several times above what they're paying now. And this is this is the same, you know, across the board for police and fire and other public employees. And clearly, they're not happy about it. But the flip side is that the state doesn't have the resources to sustain spending at the levels that they've sustained over the years without some substantive tax increases, which the governor said aren't in the best interest of the residents in New Jersey. So the solution to deal with major shortfalls in both pensions and health benefits is to create a scenario where the employees who get the benefits contribute a significantly larger amount towards the cost of those benefits. And that's 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 really the, the basis of this discussion. And because it plays such a big role moving forward, not just in the state budget, but in what drives local property taxes, it's a big issue across the board for the governor as well as members of the legislature. Mike, we've been and talking about this pertaining only to teachers, and then you mentioned about the other public service employees, the firemen, the policemen, but I think we could also presume that this is going to apply to all school district employees, including superintendents and BAs. Absolutely. And this, oh, yeah. this, this will apply across the board in the public sector to everybody who, who derives a salary from a, from a, a public employer. Which I think has contributed to the increased number of retirements both last year and this year. I, I just read a report that this year's retirements are just as high as last year's, if not higher, which I, I believe, I guess, most of them are looking at those numbers saying that if they're going to have to contribute more, they're going to retire now. Yeah, I think that the on the pension side of the equation, the, the, the preliminary version of the bill that I've been looking at this afternoon is is not dramatically different from from what everybody expected. The the people who who started to work in and are in the system prior to 2008 will basically be 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 left alone in terms of any any changes to the parameters of the system. The people who who started after 2008 will see an increase in the in the in the minimum retirement age from uh, 60 to 62, and anybody who's a new employee after the beginning of this legislation would have a retirement age of 65. The thing that, that hits all of the employees um, is the fact that right now people in PERS contribute 5.5% of their salaries towards their pension. Under the, under the proposed bill that the legislature is considering, that would go up by 1% immediately to 6.5%, and there'd be a, another 1% increase based in over the next four years. So within the next four years, people who are paying 5.5% would see their pension costs go up to 7.5%. For police and firemen who, who pay 8.5%, they would go up to 10% over the next four wow. years. Okay, um, now we have a call here. Uh, John, this is John Walsh. <clears throat> Hi, Ray. John, you got a question? Yeah, I, Mike's numbers, what he was talking about, the pension part of it, the uh, benefits part of it, doesn't that Sweeney's platform? This, this, The proposal that's on the table is a compromise between what the governor originally put out was a three-year, 30% maximum versus Steve Sweeney's proposal, which was a seven-year and I think it was a, a, a 32 or 33 percent maximum. So the compromise is a four-year phase in. It's a little longer than the governor wanted, 
but a couple years shorter than what Steve Sweeney wanted, although the percentages are roughly the same as Sweeney's proposal. The governor wanted everybody to pay 30%. In Sweeney's deal, you're, you're given some consideration based on where you are in the pecking order of salaries. The, the people at the high end obviously would pay that, that higher amount, but the people who make the minimum salaries wouldn't be disadvantaged so much. Mike, right. you also... Um, Keep sorry, going. John, you have another question? Uh, I had I had one. Uh, John, well, I was talking to the other... I shouldn't have two Johns yeah. on at the same time. John Walsh, <laughs> did you have another... Uh... No, I didn't, Mike. All right. Uh, John uh, Walsh, it, it, I'm talking to a, now. Uh, uh, I'll call you JW because I like you. Uh, or just JB. Just put, just add the, um, the number one and now put your hand down, okay? And then okay. if you have a question later on, I'll take it. Just, just just a question on the uh, denominator for right now the denominator is 55. Correct. Uh, and you, you mentioned 62 versus 65. Uh, I, I know that there was a proposal of phasing it in of 60, 62, 65. Uh, is it just going to go to 62 at this point, or at 60 at this point with the legislation you've seen? I, I think the only people who will see the denominator change based on my initial read of this, and, and it's a 120-page bill, so I have to really go over it with a fine-tooth comb. I just got it this afternoon. The only people who would see the denominator go to 60 are the new hires. Everybody else would remain at the at the N over 55. Um, I guess the other thing I should mention, and, and one of the big cost savers that's built into this legislation, does not Im- impact existing employees at all, but it impacts all the retirees. Right now in statute, there's an automatic cost of living adjustment every year. Under the parameters of this legislation, there would be no automatic cost of living adjustment or COLA every year. The legislature and the governor would have to agree to it, and then it would have to be put into the Annual Appropriations Act. It wouldn't be automatic. And and according to the treasurer, that one thing saves the state hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis. Okay, so that that would be an annual review then for that. Right, it would be an annual review, yeah. and, and the people who are impacted are the people who are already retired. Mm-hmm. I know that they have been talking about that for a while, because that is a, a big chunk every year. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll, we'll move on to uh, other issues now, uh, outside of the, the state budget. Um, one of the other things that we were talking about is school choice issues. Uh and charter schools, and uh, there's a new transformation uh, school. These are all new part of the education reform agenda, and uh, when I sent out the survey, it was interesting. Uh, people are split pretty evenly on, divided on where they think charter schools fit in, though they all agree that they should have more monitoring, at least the board members do. Uh, they're split as to where they should be opening, whether they should be opening in districts that only have a need, or some some people are against them. Uh, so let's start on these choice districts uh, and choice issues. Um, what about the Opportunity Scholarship Act? That was a big deal uh, a few months ago. It seems like it's died down, but it um, seems like it might be re-earn, returning uh, now as part of maybe even part of the budget discussion. Where's sure, the last thing you've just... heard, Mike, on that? Ray, can I throw something out there first? Just a, a thought, okay. uh, because this is something that we discussed at the at the last delegate assembly, uh, when the delegate assembly passed a resolution supporting the community's rights to have a vote on whether charter schools should be placed in, in their district or not. Uh, since that time, NJSBA has testified in support of such legislation, uh, 
and I've noticed that many legislators are now discussing this concept. And, and, and additionally, uh, newspapers have been writing articles about this. Uh, it does show that the fact that when things ha- take place at the delegate assembly, sometimes it does have an impact and has an effect. But uh, but I think it, it ties right into what you're talking about now with the Opportunity Scholarship Act and, and the charter school situation. So, Mike, I'll toss it back to you at this point. Uh, yeah, let me let me. Uh, I'll take a roundabout way to get to the point you just made, John. I think first of all, there's been a lot of discussion lately about the Opportunity Scholarship Act coming back at the 11th hour in a in a watered down fashion. In other words, the original versions that were introduced in the Senate and the Assembly were somewhat different in terms of the number of potential students and the number of districts who could participate. There's been some discussion about modifying the version down to maybe five or six pilot districts and minimizing the number of students who could participate in the initial pilot of this program to reduce the the ultimate cost from revenues diverted from the corporation business tax. Um, It's potentially plausible that this discussion moving forward could be part of a compromise that the legislature reaches with the governor who's been adamant about moving forward with the Opportunity Scholarship Act, as well as the new commissioner who sees it as a, as a key part of education reform and the compromise over some of the funding issues that we talked about earlier relative to extra dollars for districts who aren't part of the, the 31 Abbots. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's not a, a revised version of the Opportunity Scholarship Act that suddenly gets addressed within the next week or so. Now, once again, this is just scuttlebutt I've heard in the state house, but it seems likely that there could be a whole bunch of things discussed as part of the broader budget compromise that that needs to happen in the next two weeks. So um, I guess the key issue that, that we dealt with at the delegate assembly was the idea that if, if a charter school is going to open in, a, in any individual school district, clearly there's a diversion of money, 90% of the per pupil amount, that the district spends goes out of the public school system and into the charter school. And in, and in many instances, there's been questions about some of the schools that have opened or, or have been approved by the department in places like Princeton Regional and East Brunswick and whether or not they're really providing some necessary instructional support for for students in the district or rather they're the, they're the will of a minority of people who are trying to cash in on this this charter school initiative and create basically private schools for a subset of the community with public dollars. Um, the fact that that this legislation has been introduced um, and heard in the in the Assembly Education Committee, notwithstanding, um, the bill hasn't been posted for a vote in the Assembly, and Senator Ruiz, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, hasn't hasn't indicated that she's going to consider this anytime soon. So the idea that there would be a referendum locally to approve a charter school is probably going to take a while to move to fruition, even if it does. But it's it's brought into focus the idea that a big part of the problem with charter schools isn't charter schools in, them, in and of themselves. For all intents and purposes, they're potentially members of our association because they're public schools. The real issue is the fact that they divert money away from a lot of districts that are frankly struggling and need those resources so that when a charter school opens, the first thing that happens is the public school loses some of the resources it needs to sustain itself and and do the improvements that are required to enhance the educational programs. So this discussion has come full circle 
back to the idea that we need to find a way to get a stream of revenue to charter schools that doesn't divert money that the public schools already have. The proponents and of the just I uh, just want to reach out to our callers uh, and listeners if you want to have a question or comment on charter schools choice or any of those. Uh, Opportunity Scholarship Act, just dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press 1, and we'll get your comment. Um, Mike, on the charter school, there was other, besides the, the referendum on charter schools, there were other bills that were discussed. Um, for example, there was one on uh, who should be authorizers and right. also on the conversion of private schools to conversion school uh, to charter schools. Uh is this an instance where they might get out of the assembly? And unlike the budget, there doesn't seem to be a lot of support in the Senate for some of these. Well, what's interesting is that the the, the first issue, charter school authorizers, was first addressed in the Senate Education Committee last fall, and and there was a a, a measure introduced, and frankly by the the chair Teresa Ruiz, that would expand who can authorize charter schools to include Rutgers and some of the other state universities. And the administration supported an amendment that we proposed that would allow local school boards to become authorizers of charter schools as well. And and they stood by that and still do. In the assembly, the version that moved forward out of uh, Summerman Dignan's education committee did not include uh, school districts as authorizers because there was a discussion on the, on the Democratic caucus that they didn't think it was appropriate for school districts to be authorizers of charter schools. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the rationale was, but the legislation that moved out of the assembly is is, is a little different than the legislation that the, the Senate has addressed. So I'm not quite sure where that stands right now. There'd have to be some reconciliation of the differences. But clearly there's a there's 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 a sense that um the task of, of looking at who can authorize a charter school moving forward won't be limited just to the Department of Education. Um, the other issue that you raised was was largely about the fact that there are a lot of private and, and parochial schools over time that have closed their doors. And previously there was a requirement in statute that there was a, a moratorium on using those facilities for three years. The legislation that's moving forward in the legislature now would allow a, a parochial school, for example, that closed its doors this June to reopen next September as a charter school. And there are a lot of proponents of charter schools who think that that will go a long way to giving charter schools the opportunity to have adequate facilities. Uh, one of the things that charter schools don't get is the opportunity to spend any of the public dollars they get on facilities. They have to find other ways to support their facilities, mm -hmm. and it's been a big problem, and it's been it's something that's thwarted the advancement of, of charter schools across the state. Okay, Mike, and you have some question on Ray, or I just sure. Like to, go ahead, John. Okay, just a, a little thing is kind of a follow up. Uh, but this past week, there was uh, some write ups in the the press about uh, politics making strange bell, bedfellows when uh, the governor and I believe George Norcross uh, were talking in Camden about creating for profit charter schools. The transformation schools. Yes. Yeah. That was my one of my next topics. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, jumping a gun here. <laughs> um, well, let's finish on the, uh, on the on the charter schools, and we'll move to the transformation because that, that okay. that's a, a new one. Uh, but uh, uh, John does bring up a, a good point about 
charter schools make strange politics, make strange bedfellows, and charter schools is there because it was in the a similar article was that some of the Republicans are being receptive to the idea of the referendum in, or at least having some community input in the su- suburbs to finding the need for a charter school, mostly because I think it's in their legislative districts. Uh, did you pick up on that too, Mike? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I think that, you know, um, the commissioner was, was asked this question in a roundabout way by Senator Blono, the Senate Majority Leader, at the at the budget hearing for the Department of Education in early May. And he pointed out the fact that originally charter schools were, were meant to be an alternative primarily in districts that had schools, not not districts, but schools within the district that were failing. And the idea here was, was to create an alternative scenario because ultimately it's all about the kids in the districts and getting them an adequate education. And if charter schools could provide that opportunity, then the goal was to provide a scenario where they could move forward and get the kids the education that they needed. The the question that, that got raised was whether or not in towns like Princeton and East Brunswick, et cetera, there's, there are failing schools and whether or not you need to have a charter program in towns that actually have a fairly good track record. On the other hand, um, there seems to be a lot of support on both sides of the aisle to address problems in, in in some of the urban districts where they have instances where they have schools who chronically don't meet state standards and the kids who who who, who get to go there by default don't get the education that, that, that they should be getting and, and the desire to fix that sooner as opposed to later has caused some of the people that we just mentioned to move forward and support the charter program. Uh, in fact, if anyone's uh, listening to this program, we had Shavars Jeffries, a uh, former president of the school board in uh, or the advisory board in Newark, and the Newark board is of that mindset over many of them that they need charter schools because they need to help the kids now. So it's, it, it plays a little differently in, in the urban districts. I just want to go back to the conversion uh, on charter schools, uh, the conversion bill. I know you, you mentioned parochial bills, but am I wrong? The way I read the bill, it's any. Uh, not not a uh, private school if they wanted to convert there is it's not just limited to parochial schools though I know in many districts it's the the Catholic schools there used to be a great number of them they're the ones that are closing but this would apply to other private schools too absolutely yeah I mean it's not it's not limited to just just the parochial schools the the goal here is to create opportunities to to match up facilities that were previously used to educate kids in some fashion with charter schools who want to provide services in those towns and can't find adequate facilities, and that's what's preventing them from moving forward. So they want to remove the impediment of this three-year moratorium so they can give uh, you know, a variety of new opportunities to charter schools who have everything in place except the facility in which to begin to operate. Yeah, but I know some of the complaints from some of those other districts is that charter schools are basically pro- – Private schools, uh, private school operators finding a way to run schools through public funds. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, it, it, I guess the devil's always in the details, and 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 there are a lot of different vantage points from from how you could look at it. I mean, that really leads to your to to the other issue about this this public private transformation. And the the governor in his press conference last week in Camden 
talked about the fact that there would be legislation introduced this week, we still haven't seen it, um, on how this would all play out. And I think that, you know, clearly there's been a lot of discussion about leveraging dollars from hedge funds and other private investors, um, the, the whole issue with, with the, the Facebook founder in Newark, et cetera, and putting money into creative alternatives in districts where a disproportionate number of the kids aren't passing the minimum basic skills test. So there seems to be a sense now, at least on the part of the governor, that this is, this is another option, and I think that, that they're trying to use towns like Newark and Camden almost as laboratories where they can, they can look at a pilot that, that gives them the leeway to do educational alternatives that, on a limited basis at least, have worked in other urban areas in the country to jumpstart the program so that the kids who are in school right now have a, have a, a, a chance to move forward and get the education that, for whatever reason, the public schools aren't giving them. Um, and, and, you know, this becomes a, a, a subjective issue because there are, there are strong voices on both sides of the, the equation, but the fact that some key Democrats are now jumping on board seems to indicate that there's been a lot of thought about this and, and something is getting ready to happen relative to at least a pilot in the state to, to once and for all stop the talking and try it and see what happens. Um, it will be interesting to see how this plays out, and the, this is something that will probably play out in the balance of this legislative session. And, and for people, board members, they should know that the way the proposal is, as I saw it, even though there's no bill yet, it's um, the local board has the, the final decision on whether to to go along with this. As this, it's not so, something that's fostered on them. It's their decision whether they want to have a, a transformation school district, right? Well, you know, that, that's a really good point, and I think that that's a, a great signal from the administration that they're willing to to give boards some role in this in this whole grand experiment that they're proposing moving forward. They're not going to unilaterally impose this 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 pilot on anybody, but 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 they're looking for boards who are interested in participating to create some options for kids outside the, the traditional options to participate in this pilot program. And I think that, that it's, like I said, it's a great point that they're not, they're not trying to impose their will on, on local boards, but rather get boards to be participants in, in education reform. And I think that's a good signal from the administration. Uh, to our co listeners, if you want to comment or make a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, and then press number one, and that will indicate that you have a question. Um, let's move on to. Um, I don't think there's any any other comments on charter schools or choice at this point. The, the only thought that I had is, and it's one I'm sure other board members have mentioned to you before, and just, just echoing the fact that if you're creating a transformation school or a for-profit school, whatever you want to call it, how are they going to do things more effectively if they're looking to make a profit as opposed to uh, public schools, which are not for-profit? That's, and and that's, I don't expect an answer from you necessarily. I, I, I think it's a, a business model that they feel that those school districts, they may not have the same teacher contracts and, and things of that sort, but that's their job to find a way to be effective and uh, to be effective and at a cost that's within. I guess the, uh, the, thing, the big question is: be effective. How do you how do you 
incorporate the private sector model into public education in any effective way. If if public education has historically been something that's the ultimate not-for-profit, um, the, the cost associated with public schools are the cost to run the operation, not the cost to provide a profit margin for for the board or the administrative staff or anybody else. How do you how uh, how do you make this work in a sense that the private sector model is somehow going to produce superior results? It does. There's there's a lot of questions I have, but I guess that's part of why this is proposed as a pilot to 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 try it to see if there's any way that 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 this could take hold or in fact might 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 actually work. I mean, I I, I don't want to sound skeptical, but I guess I have a lot of questions about how it could possibly work. Yeah, and, and this is and this has only been proposed, and it would have to go through the entire legislative process. I, I think that would take some time on this one. Uh, that's not going to happen uh, by June 30th. That's at least from my perspective, right. John. Yeah, I, I agree. Yes, I agree with you on that. But it might be something we're discussing next fall, but uh, yeah. not now. Did you have another question, John? No, it just you know, as Mike said, it raises a whole set of questions. Uh, it, it you know, any of the things that we've talked about really aren't very simplistic answers. Uh, but it is, as Mike said, you know, you, if you look at the uh, the questions that are raised, not just the the question of uh, how is the private model going to work uh, as opposed to public model, but when we hear things about the difficulty in attracting and retaining teachers, uh, and uh, there are some reports that say, well, you have to pay them more. Uh, if you're doing it for profit, how is that going to equate with uh, paying more money than when you're getting in the in the public sector, but yet being able to turn a profit. I mean, it's such a complex question that it's one that we could sit here and talk for hours just upon that alone. But as Mike indicated, there are a lot of different sides to the issue that need to be addressed. I think and that's why I don't think it'll move rapidly through the, the legislature. Uh, yes. You know, we've been discussing uh, the, the budget, the pension reform, and usually there's a sticking point in one house or the other on, on these new issues. Uh, but the private model is the private business model is part of the education reform agenda to a certain mm -hmm. degree, uh, running well, school districts more business like. The, the, like the, the say John, John just made is a good one. I think that to the extent that you could, in, in some operational sense, create a pilot where you have this private sector model in play for all the people who say that merit pay won't work, for example, you'll get a chance to see firsthand whether it actually does. The assumption being that, you know, teachers who, who who perform at a higher level will get the benefit of uh, higher increases in pay, et cetera, based on the fact that they won't have uh, the traditional collective bargaining agreement and so on. So it's it's a it's a laboratory to examine not just whether or not this educational model provides a better quality of education for the kids, but whether it provides a, a better working model for running the whole public school edifice. And I think that, that remains to be seen, but I think that's one of the reasons why there's a desire to move forward and test this out, because there's a lot of issues that can be looked at and researched there to get some hard data. Yeah, the, the only problem I see with it is that it, if we're using it as a laboratory, the, the product of the students, and if it doesn't work, then we have a mess. Uh, uh, and I, I understand I, the I, I, don't, I think the, the argument, though, uh, that I'm not going to presume the government, right. governor's argument, but 
he he's thinking of districts where there is no success or very little success, well, and that it's, we have to try something to reform that. Th these results are not good enough. Uh, and I mentioned before the the interview I had with Shavar Jeffries. He even the reason they support uh, charter schools was he brought to the point. You know, when you're poor, a lot of times you don't have a lot of choices and and options and maybe we need some more choices and options in our poorest areas, and these are ways to do that. No, no I understand that. If it's not working, what do we do to make it work? That's, that's the bottom line, because we want to see these kids succeed. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of people start talking about these kids as an experiment as opposed to uh, humans or students that want to see succeed so they can become productive members of society. Uh, I, I think the, the proponents of these things would argue, and I don't want to speak for them, but I think they would argue that we 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 can't possibly do any worse than what we're doing for a lot of these kids right no, now. No, I understand that. Uh, I'm just saying that you know, that's why it becomes a difficult situation because you want to make sure that whatever you're doing is going to give you the success that you want to have so these kids can succeed. Right. Right. You know, when we're talking about the business model, I guess that really segue us pretty well into the last uh, third of this session uh, and that's on the teacher issues, tenure reform, merit pay, um, teacher evaluations. Uh, Mike, now I don't think she's actually introduced the bill yet or she she pulled it, um, but I know Senator Ruiz, who's the chair of the Senate Education Committee and a Democrat, uh, proposed uh, a tenure reform model, and Senator Carrillos, a Republican, uh, proposed another one. Just give me a little brief uh synopsis of maybe some of the similarities and differences well i i think i think both of them have have a model in place that moving forward would not do away with tenure as we know it but would create a scenario where um you would have to earn tenure with continuing uh, evaluations as an effective teacher so that moving forward if if in in a in a period beyond the initial attainment of tenure which I think in, in Senator Carillas's bill is three years, and Ruiz's bill would be four. Um, or I might have that just reversed. But the point is that it doesn't stop there. You would have to be evaluated on, on an annual basis. And if in, a, in any, in any five-year period you received more than one evaluation that was less than effective, there would be a flashpoint where you'd have to submit to some kind of remedial training, et cetera, or you would risk losing tenure. Um, that being said, um, it, it, neither of these bills goes as far as what NJSBA policy has in place. We we advocate eliminating tenure almost completely in the sense that we would go with an initial five-year period to give districts a little more time to evaluate new teachers. And then once teachers attain tenure, every fifth year there would be a review. And at the end of that review process, if the teachers weren't weren't continuing to be effective, um, then th they would risk losing tenure. Um, so, so our our policies go a little further than either one of these bills. I think the whole point here, and the, and the the sticking point that that's going to cause these bills to move somewhat slowly is, although everybody would agree that we need to look at how teachers are evaluated, and and both of these bills assume that there's some some part of that evaluation process based on how well or not well students are doing in the classroom. Um, 
the administration's proposal, the, the Corolla's proposal, assumes that at least 50% of the evaluation would be based on student performance, on, on various measures of, of, of their, their attainment of certain basic skills. Um, I, I'm not sure where Senator Ruiz's is, but it's, it, it's, it includes it in there. The point, though, is that how do you measure student achievement in the context of what the teacher's contribution is? Um, and there's been a lot of discussion. If if you have a district where you have a teacher who has kids who are all performing at the 90th percentile, and at the end of the year those kids are now performing at the 91st percentile, you could say that the teacher didn't have to do too much to get those kids up at 1%. But if you have another teacher in a district where kids come into the school year performing at the 30th percentile, and when they leave they're at the 45th percentile, they're still not doing as good as the kids in the other district, but the, the magnitude of their improvement has been dramatic. And, and you, one could make the argument that that second teacher has done a better job than the first teacher. So what does that mean? Does that teacher get a higher pay raise or, or, or some kind of a, a promotional opportunity that the other teacher doesn't get? That's, that's the kind of details that all these discussions are going to bring to fruition, and I don't think anybody has exactly all the answers yet. Yeah, and for those who, uh, I'll make a shameless promo that we had the chair of the Governor's Task Force on Education Effectiveness on, and he did talk about some of those, and it should be noted that that's what they call the growth model, where right. you measure student growth, but it's, that's a, a good concept, but it's not it's not easily attained in every single subject or class, because not all of them, I think it's only about 20-25% have a state standardized test tied right. to their curriculum. And you can make the argument that it's only math and English in fourth grade, and maybe the teacher is really good at social studies and science, which are not being tested. So um, that that's one of the things that's very difficult is how do you evaluate the teachers? And, and Right. How do you evaluate the teachers? And then when, when a teacher gets a subpar evaluation, what does that mean? And, and what opportunities should be built into the statute to give that teacher a chance to recover? Um, should that teacher automatically lose tenure, or should there be a, a, a period of a year or so where there's an opportunity for mentoring and, and, and additional training, et cetera? And who pays for that training? What happens in that year? Is the teacher still in the classroom? Is that teacher replaced? And if there's if there's a new teacher in, in, in place of the other teacher who's still in the system but in a training mode, who pays for all this stuff? Where does the resources come from? So there's a lot of additional questions relative to what's ultimately the cost to local districts. And I think from a local board's perspective, the idea that some of this stuff is being talked about is great, but the implications are potentially problematic in, in the sense that none of these proposals would, would in my opinion, cost less than what we're spending now. In fact, they'd probably require an additional investment in, in teacher development. And in, in the context of what we talked about earlier with school funding, where do you find those resources? That's, that's going to yeah. be a big issue here. And plus, I think the, all the models also call for more evaluations, and that's a staffing issue because you have administrators, which school boards have over the last few years been cutting back on administrative spending because their budgets have been tighter and there have been caps on administrative spending. So that's another difficulty in uh, the teacher evaluation issue. 
Yeah, another another uh, issue, at least in, the, in Senator Ruiz's bill, is is the role of the board in this process versus um, where it is now. In, in her bill, ultimately, the, the principals who who are primarily charged with doing the evaluations have the final say on on who's deemed an effective teacher and who isn't. And there's not much feedback that that, that the board is allowed to provide. Um, some people see that as a diminishment of the of the role of the board in the overall tenure process, and, and it may well be. But the, the the issue that you raise raises a good one because you, you want to make sure if, if you're going to invest in this system that you have the principles in place with the training to do the proper evaluation so you get the kind of results you need. And that's a whole separate issue that also needs to be addressed. How do you make sure you've trained the principals appropriately so that they can do the evaluations that the law requires? Yeah, and I uh, believe that uh, tying student teacher performance to student achievement, they would do the same for the principals. So I, I think the theory behind it is that if you're tying the principal's evaluation to his school's performance on teacher-student performance, he has to have some control over the teachers, or more control over the over the teachers right. in in that area. Um, the, the the other point that I guess our members probably should be aware of is that there are there are um, school districts. I mean, um, there are uh, there'll be two separate evaluation models for some districts, such as uh, music and art, that or gym, where there's not a state standardized test. There's a possibility that we will have uh, two different types of evaluation systems. Right. One for teachers who have standardized tests and one who don't. And that's what actually came from Brian Zakowski, the chair of the committee, so I assume that's what the governor is thinking at this point, unless they move to an area where they have a lot of tests. I think, I think that all the people who I've talked to have agreed that, that people who, who, who support the idea of tenure reform, and we've been we've been supporting some movement in this direction for quite a while at the association, believe that, that the fact that we're having these discussions is great. The, the question now is how quickly can we proceed and, and, and how, do we, how do we make sure that we're doing it right? All right, we have a, a question. And let me see. Oh, I think I know who this is. Rosemary? Hey, Ray. How are you? Hi, Mike. Hi, Good. John. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. How you doing? Um, I just had a question about um, you guys were talking about, you know, teacher tenure, the uh, evaluation we've done by the principal. But I understand that, and I don't know where the bill is on this, is that they want to change the uh, requirements, I guess, for the leaders, and I guess it would be for principals, that they wouldn't be have to be instructional leaders anymore. So what would that really impact if you were to then change the requirements of the principals and they're not instructional leaders, so really how would they be able to evaluate the teachers? Well, that, that's that's an excellent question that I, I, I don't know that anybody has a good answer for. I mean, there's there's this sense that across the board now there there seems to be a movement at the state level to, to provide alternate scenarios for some of the key players in district. There's regulations that that were put in the, in the New Jersey Register in May that, that create an alternate route for superintendents. So in some circumstances, a commission could approve a superintendent in a district that doesn't have the training that traditionally superintendents have. Um, the same would be true of these educational leaders. I mean, is it possible that you can find someone 
who has the latent skills to be a true leader of of, a, of an individual school and yet doesn't have the training that traditionally principals do have? I suppose. But how do you how do you measure that? And how do you how do you know when you found one of those people who who came through an alternate scenario? And and how do you how do you build this statute that measures when you know you got that person and when you don't? Yeah, um, I would add to that. Um, I would imagine most board, school boards that I know probably would not be inclined to go in that direction for how they would hire. So I, I, I don't think the law would be mandatory, but I, I, th- I think it would be at the board's discretion. And I don't know too many superintendents who would hire someone in that method at, at this point, but your point is well taken. I think it's uh, going in two different directions. I guess the other thing that you might add is if, if you're tying uh, teacher performance tr- almost strictly to test scores, then it doesn't take a lot of talent to evaluate them. Yeah, and, and I mean, this this is this is a discussion that I think is going to go on for some time. I don't think you're going to see tenure reform bills move quickly through the legislature, uh, and, and I think it's it's appropriate that there's an opportunity for all the parties who, who participate in this to be heard. And I'm really glad that that boards are engaged and involved in this because I think it's important. And it's, uh, for the first time that I've been around, this is a serious discussion on tenure reform. Uh, the most serious I've ever seen. Rosemary, do you have any other comments? Uh, no, I'm good for right now. Thanks. Okay, I'll tell you what you do, though, Rosemary. Do me a favor. You press the number one, and if you have another question, you press the one again, and then I know you have it because I have a little hand on my switchboard, and it tells me that. Those things. So I'll call Great, you thanks. again if you have another question. Thanks, Rosemary. Okay. Bye. Bye. Uh, we have uh, John Walsh, I think, is back, and he has a question. John? Okay. Uh, Mike was talking about tenure reform. He's talking about mm-hmm. the two bills, Cryo's bill and uh, Ruiz's bill. Um, the problem I see, the way I see it, is our tenured teachers are only observed. Well, they might be observed more than once, but they're only evaluated once according to contract. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a mm-hmm. big problem. But now, whether the administration does the evaluation from their office. Or they go into the classroom to do it. That's a that's another question. But there's got to be some kind of a system, and uh, um, it's got to be that they do more than one evaluation of a tenured uh, staff member. I think yeah. that was part of the careers bill. Uh, but one of the points we brought up earlier, I think, was that that means that that's administrative time, and because uh, right now, as you pointed out, John. You only have to evaluate, uh, observe them once. Do you have more observations? And in most school districts, most of the teachers are tenured, so that's a lot more time for the administrators. Mike, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think two things. I think um, first of all, all of this stuff requires additional work, since it's it's labor intensive. And it's funny how it often comes back to the issue of where do you find the resources to provide for this additional work. Do you you give the task to people who are already doing multiple tasks, or do you find somebody new and hence enhance your administrative spending in order to accommodate the the, the different workload that's going to be involved here, all all in in the name of improving the delivery of of, of educational services to the kids? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting conundrum because 
to fix things, generally you got to spend more money, and we're trying to figure out ways to reduce the, the, the cost of education and, and, and reduce the property tax burden. And I don't know how, in the context of this discussion, you're going to be able to get there fast. Uh, John, I want to add one more thing. Uh, I know uh, the task force, I looked at this for the governor, and another task force that was independent of some educators had a what they call a peer, uh, peer uh, assessment review committee, and that would be fellow teachers, administrators that would work with teachers uh, on observing them and helping them if they need help. The big question is, are those teachers member of the union or are those teachers outside of the union? So uh, I think there's a way to look at getting other people to do some of those observations and uh, mentoring without adding staff. But it, it, your point is well taken. Yeah, and, and just just as an echo, if I may, these are things that uh, in national reports have been conducted, echoing the exact same sentiments that you're talking about, Mike's talking about, and John's talking about. Okay. So I, not, you, it's not unique to New Jersey, but it's it's something that's nationwide. Uh, John Walsh, you have another follow up? No, no, my. Okay, thanks, John. I'll put you on uh, hold, and if you have a question, just press one. Uh, John, you bring up a good point. All these issues that we're talking about, we seem isolated in New Jersey, but it, it really these are really national debates going on, and we're just talking about them locally, but these are national debates. Uh, Mike, you and I talked about this once before. One of the, There's a couple other things that are being discussed in this area, and one of those is an issue called uh, mutual consent, something that, to me, I haven't heard of until recently. Um, you want to explain some of the concerns that yeah, I, I know I that the association might have with mutual consent? When when you have a situation in, in, in between school years where where the administrators in the district or, 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 or the principals decide that, you know, I've got a teacher who's not – really working out in, in in this school but probably might be a good fit for your school and and the principal in the corresponding school says I've got a teacher that isn't working out here and maybe we could swap those people into the different schools um at least one of the bills I think Senator Carlos's bill has a provision that that allows for the employee to to consent to the transfer to teaching assignments and if they if they don't if if the district wants to do it but the teacher doesn't then it doesn't happen and the question then becomes if you've got a principal who's adamant that they want a particular teacher out of a certain teaching assignment um what happens next does that teacher go into some remedial situation and get replaced with a new teacher or does that teacher stay there against the principal's wishes how does that work and the, another question a parochial question for us is What's the role of the board in that discussion? Um, you know, if if now you've got a person that somebody doesn't want, but that person doesn't want to transfer to another assignment uh, in, in some other school in, in, in the same district, um, what do you do? Um, if, if the if the legislation says that both parties have to agree and one doesn't, what what happens next? Do you, does that teacher get suspended? Or, or 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 go somewhere else for an intervening period, and at what cost to the district? Um, that's a that's a question that's been raised, and I haven't got a clear answer on it yet. And 
where's the superintendent's role in that too? Because it seems like it's not just the board that would have some loss of authority. It would seem that uh, the superintendent doesn't have as much authority either because the principal, I guess at the expense of the principal having more control over who's in on his staff. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the elements that seems to be be large in in this discussion is the idea of uh, it's been called different things, but what comes to mind is school-based management. In other words, the focus is on individual schools within it within a district, and and getting down to the to the level of the individual students and 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 the individual classrooms in those schools and. How do we manage at, at, a, at a micro level? And, you know, at, at that level, local boards really don't have often that much direct involvement. And, and to, a, to a certain degree, neither do the superintendents. It's the principal. And I think in a large part of the, the, the thing that we, we talked about briefly but is worth talking about some more is that the role of principals is dramatically enhanced in a lot of these tenure reform proposals because they're key players here. They're the ones who are making the, the initial calls, whether they, they, they're they vetted through the superintendent or the local board notwithstanding. The, the, the changes and the decisions initially are going to be made by the principals. And I think to a certain degree that's happening now, but the implications of some of these reform proposals put a lot more responsibility on the shoulders of the principals. And with that, probably additional uh, accountability. Right, exactly. Um, and there's one other thing that I, I, I know the, the commissioner talks about it is, and that's the LIFO last in, first out. He'd like to see, <coughs> like to see some changes in that area. Well, you know, I heard, Which I heard we would a great, probably agree with a, a great story the other day. If 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 you use the current scenario, and, and this this analogy may be lost on some people, just bear with me. If in the current scenario you had a reduction in force on the Chicago Bulls, who were were a couple games short of being in the NBA championships this most recent year. Um, Derek Rose, who was the NBA's most valuable player, he was a first-year player. Um, if you had to cut staff on the, on the Chicago Bulls team, he he would be cut, even though he was maybe the best player on the team. And so the analogy to public schools is when you do the last in, first out, oftentimes you're you're cutting one of the better teachers at the expense of keeping somebody else who isn't as good but has seniority. And and this has been an issue that a lot of people have wanted to attack for a while, and, and the association has had some concerns about this. But balancing out employee rights, how do, you, how do you come up with a methodology that's fair in terms of considering certain things beyond just pure, I've been in the district longer than you have, hence if there's a reduction, I stay and you go. Um, that's a, a big part of the tenure reform discussion. In fact, I think for some for some school districts and some local boards, probably one of the biggest parts of it, because the, the goal ultimately is nobody wants to, to, to cut back on staff. But if you do, you want to get rid of the poorest performers and, and keep the best performers. And the last in, first out doesn't always let you do that. So that's a big discussion. Um that you know, that almost brings us back to how we evaluate teachers. Is the the Department of Ed? I think I think I saw that the commissioner was thinking of having a a pilot program on maybe looking at ways of evaluating teachers mm -hmm. and initiating that that new way of evaluating in a few districts. Have you read anything on that? I haven't seen too much about it. I mean, clearly a lot of this stuff before it's just 
they're not just going to implement this across the board overnight. I think they're going to, and, and they're looking now for for districts to to sign on to volunteer to participate in this new evaluation model that the governor's task force has recommended. Um, I don't know that I'm I'm expecting that there's going to be some formal communication from through the commissioner from the department laying out this proposal to districts and asking districts to sign on because I think that first of all they don't want to force this on anyone but they want districts who are interested in looking at this to participate in a study to see what are the what are the successes and what are the shortfalls because they need to get this right if they're going to do this on a statewide basis. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I also believe Senator Ruiz's bill on tenure reform was more prospective. It didn't really affect – it was more for newer hired, not for people who yes. already established it. Yes. So and that was the big compromise, I guess, which might get it through. Now, I've had conversations, and I know you've heard uh, Assemblyman Dygan, who's chaired the Assembly Education Committee. I don't think he has great interest in moving any of these forward at this point. No, and and that that becomes another issue. I mean, in the past there have been tremendous obstacles overcome by by compromise solutions, etc. But in this case, it would appear that the chairs of the of the of the committees in both houses have a uniquely different perspective. And and whether or not this bill gets through the Senate quickly begs the question of what happens when it gets to the assembly side. Um, and and that's going to be a question that we're not going to we're not going to get the answer to quickly. Probably not at least till the fall, if 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 that soon. But at some point, um, legislation that's been introduced in the Senate by Senators Carillas and and and, and Ruiz has to have counterparts or has to be moved through the, the respective assembly committees, and specifically the education committee. And if if the chair has said you know up front that he's not really interested in in this discussion, then does that mean these things don't go anywhere? I, I, I don't know. I'm sure that some compromises will be worked out, but what are they, and and what's what's our role in vetting some of those things? Which, I guess, is an important point, sort of a commercial here. That you know, this is important stuff for for local board members to to pay attention to and to think through, because at some point we're all going to have the opportunity to participate, at least as as uh, through the association or as individual boards in some of these pilots that are proposed in, in looking at how this all plays out. And I think that um, some of the questions and some of the pitfalls that, that aren't as obvious to, to, to someone like me but are more obvious to people who have been in the education field or particularly on, on local boards need to be fleshed out and brought forward because that's the value of the system where we have a series of hearings and a series of processes that have to move through before any of this stuff gets implemented. So if people out there have good ideas or, or or think they have some concept of what would make this work better, this would be the appropriate time to bring those ideas forward. All right, we have a John. Uh, John Walsh, you have another question? Yeah, uh, regarding the LIFO. I mean, LIFO is all over the world. It's in uh, every business, last in, first out, unless you have the same last name as a boss or the owner of the company. But if I'm sitting at a meeting um, and the principal says that I want to keep a first-year teacher as opposed to somebody that has tenure or somebody that's about to have tenure, 
they have to have that on their on their record that there was a problem. I mean, if if the principal has been saying we have the greatest teachers and all these observations, and then the year comes when we have this first year teacher and he wants to keep her and let go of somebody else that's been there for some time, um, I'm going to have a big problem with that. He's definitely going to have a big problem with it because he his observations have said how great this teacher is that he wants right. to get rid of now. I, I mean, John, that's going to be a big you're problem. exactly right. And I think that's uh, why there needs to be some, I, I would, for lack of a better term, field testing of this because they're the kind of issues that are going to come up. Yeah, when we had a uh, when we had a teacher on talk about that, I think their concern was, uh, you know, they want a protection that is not arbitrary. That I've been here 15 years, they've been there two years, and their salary is a lot lower. So the only reason you're letting me go is my salary. Uh, I, I think even the governor's proposal is though that it's not completely just based on evaluations. Seniority is still part of the equation, but it's not the main part of the equation. Uh, but it's something that would have to be worked out. Well, in my, in my thanks. Listen, I, I want to thank you. This has been great. I'm, I'd like listened through three years. It's a shame that only eleven people took uh, took part. Um, well, that's only eleven people who who listened on the that's on, only people okay. who registered. Okay. okay. Hopefully, there's hundreds of them out there. Okay. <laughs> well, that's we don't have hundreds. Of, John, we don't have hundreds on the Ledger Committee. We only have about 35, but that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. Next year. Hey, John, okay. John, yeah. John while, you're, while you're on the phone, I just want to come back to something that you sent me. You were good enough to send me facts of a, of a letter that, that was sent to your board by Senator Doherty from Legislative District 23. Yes, yes. Soliciting support for his school funding proposal that basically takes the pot of school aid and divides it by the number of students in the state and allocates on a per-pupil basis the entire pot that way. Um, I also had a call earlier from a board member in Lyndhurst, Bill Barnaskis, who's on our ledge committee. And, and I guess people are starting to ask us, because they're getting these letters, what, what our advice is. And I would suggest that until we have an opportunity to vet this proposal and look at some of the other ideas, particularly what our own association policy that's created by you board members, um, I would not be quick to, to consider this resolution. There's okay. some board members who want to vote on it right away, and I don't. I, I would not recommend that. Because well, the letter, the letter, Mike, the letter that he sent me says that uh, Oradell will receive six million dollars more in aid. Now, I haven't questioned him. I haven't called up. Um, I don't know where he got that figure from. Um, I would have um, a thousand resolutions. If that figure was correct, um, I, I agree, I'm definitely going to do exactly what you said. Wait for you, the school boards, to come back and um, give us some direction. That's fine. I'm sure I also, Mike, Mike, you should know. I also received a call from a couple of people who who received the same letter with the same. Uh, though previously, it only went to the board president. I, I think in John, in your case, it went to every single board member, right? Yes, it did. Yes. I mean, I, there's got to be corresponding boards out there who are getting what in, in, in Senator Doherty's formula would be more than they deserve 
and that letter probably isn't going to them because the letter would say, you get this much now and you'll get $6 million <laughs> less. You know what I mean? Yes. And so yeah, they're, I, they're obviously not going to support this this concept. So I'm I, waiting I, for you guys to come back to me. Well, we and we'll be doing that. We, Definitely. We're I know you will. We'll finance committee and take a look at this immediately. I know you will. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks a lot, John. Thanks, John. Uh, Ray, uh, I have one uh, question, if I may, yeah. unless someone else is on the phone. Uh, well, it's just... Uh, we were talking about tenure, uh, and, and one of the things that uh, the legislature had been talking about in the past was streamlining the process for tenure charges. Uh, at the last delegate assembly, uh, the DA passed a resolution dealing with uh, not streamlining the process, but dealing with the tenure charge process. Uh, with the, the mood in the legislature now, is streamlining the process for tenure charges on the back burner? Or is it the middle burner? Uh, from the sounds of things, I don't think it's on a front burner. Well, I guess there's, that's a hard question to answer mm. because it would depend on which legislator you talk to at, at the current moment. I would say that part of the mood right now has a lot to do with with what should be done through collective bargaining and what should be done in, in some statutory format. And I guess my historic problem with that is that the advocates for collective bargaining want things that they think they have a chance to win at the bargaining table to be bargained. But there's a long track record of things done through statute that precluded local boards, for example, for, for offering a, 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 a reduction um, for spousal coverage, for, for health benefits, for example, um, because it was it was perceived to be not something that they wanted to bring up in collective bargaining, but they just didn't want to do it. So they got the legislature to put a statute in place. And I think that this is one of those kinds of issues where you could you could poll 100 people and get 100 different opinions on it, but at the end of the day, um, it, the, the fundamental discussion is largely about whether this should be done through some kind of a contractual agreement or whether there should be some broader parameters and statute that flesh out what the baseline is. Um, clearly, our members think the latter. Um, whether or not the legislature in this context of favoring collective bargaining or not is, is going to move forward. In it. I don't think you're going to see it move anytime soon. Okay. Uh, John, I guess in my view, tenure, everything's either on the front burner or not on the stove because I don't think it's going to happen like quickly. I think this is a long discussion uh, and there's a lot of different aspects to it. Okay, we're coming towards the close. We have, I think, one more question coming up. No, we don't. Okay. Um, I, uh, before before we uh, close, uh, Mike, I, I want to re reiterate a couple of things that you touched on. Uh, one one of the things that we can definitely see is that we have to always remember there's two houses, and that some of the bill, like the health and benefit, uh, pension and benefit reform, what we're discussing could, could be completely different because the, the assembly is not on board. So uh, that's that could change what goes on there. And also on tenure reform, it looks like Assemblyman Dugan in the assembly is not on board with the Senate. So there's always two houses, and there's always uh, a place where things get amended along the way. Uh, and, uh, and, and, Ray, I would say that's exactly why it's important for local board members to talk to their own legislators and make sure that the legislators are very clear on where board members in their respective districts are on issues. 
Which brings us to one of our last pleas for uh, members. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a member of the Legislative Committee or Urban Boards Committee. Um, if you want to meet your legislators over the summer or in the fall, particularly if you're moving in, into a new legislative district, uh, give our uh, give either myself or the Governmental Relations Department a call or, or email me. You can email me at rpinney at njsba.org. Uh, actually, if you want to give me a comment on this uh, meeting tonight or this show, but if you want to meet with your legislator, we can set you up with someone to discuss some of these same issues that we had. Uh, let's bring us to the end of the meeting. I'd like to thank uh, John Bellina for your contributions. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you, Ray, for having me here. And uh, Mike, as always, this is like your third time, so I'm used to you being there. Uh, Mike <laughs> thanks, Rancic, Ray. Director of GR, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, and that's bringing us to the end of the the show, and I hope that you all enjoyed today's conversation. And uh, I'll let you know that next week we have a show scheduled, and our guest will be the Executive Director of NJASA, and that's on June 24th at 11 a.m. But as always, you can listen at your convenience or download the meeting. So to your listeners, I thank you again for tuning in, and thank you for your participation and some of the great questions that we received. And I will see you another time. And that okay. brings us to the end. Bye now. Same night. Night.